Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Ransfield PR. Welcome to We Built This City. With this podcast, I wanted to shine a light on the people who have put the heart into modern Manchester. You can build a city with bricks and mortar, but it's the people that make Manchester great. People like my guest, serial entrepreneur and philanthropist Vikash Shah. You can't unsee the way people are treated. You can't unsee the way governments behave. You can't unsee the legacy of conflict and war. And if you can see that and not act, I'm worried. Vikas started his first business at just 14 years old. He's CEO of textile and health company Swisscock Group. He's the honorary professor of entrepreneurship at Manchester Business School. He's also written a book of poetry. He was awarded an MBE in the 2018 New Year's Honours List. And he has the freedom of the City of London, which means he can drive sheep across London Bridge whenever he feels like it. One thing I do know about Vikas is that no matter how busy he is, he's always got time for a cup of tea and a chat. So that's what we did. Vikas, thank you for joining me on We Built This City. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I've known you for some time now and you've been a great supporter of Roland Ransfield and me. So thank you very much for that. Um, You also inadvertently make me feel that I must try harder because of the sheer breadth of the work that you do. You're widely referred to as one of the most accomplished and successful entrepreneurs and philanthropists in the UK. But what does success mean? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because when we talk about success, there's kind of this weird petrification of success into just a number so the sunday times do that kind of awful rich list thing every every year and i just don't really buy into that as being a narrative for success because i've rarely met anybody who's made lots of money because they wanted to make money it tends to be just you know people that are driven by passions or they want to do something or want to move the needle on something or want to change something and you know, there's a small, very small lucky few for whom that translates into lots and lots of money. But for me, I think success is just, you know, as long as I can keep doing the things that I'm passionate about, as long as I can keep moving the needle forward on the issues that matter to me, as long as I can do a little bit of that every day, then I'm then I'm succeeding. There's not really much more I can ask for than that. So Chris Oglesby from Bruntwood um, was on a podcast recently and he said that he can get a good night's sleep because he does his best every day and he's conscious of the bigger picture and not just what's in front of him in terms of his day job. Do you feel the same way when you go to bed at night? Do you, you know, what makes you feel that you've had a successful day? The problem I have is when I get to the end of the day, I then just start to think about all the things that I need to do. And so it's, it's rare that I'll go to bed thinking, okay, wow, yeah, you know, I really made a difference today. But I'm also really comfortable with that because I don't want that to happen. I don't want to go to bed thinking, yeah, yeah, I've done it because there's still so much to do. So I kind of just go to bed excited for what tomorrow will hold or or excited just to kind of resolve a challenge or whatever it might be. You know, I don't, I don't want to paint a picture of roses. Business is hard, you know? But for me personally, I think I'd probably start to get complacent if ever there was a day where I went to bed and thought, yeah, I've got this. <laughs> that's good because I never feel that. So that's given me a lot of confidence. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> I think it's also curiosity, isn't it, that keeps you going. So there's always something new to learn. And I think obviously you started your first business building websites when you were 14 and you've said that 
that's because you had an innate curiosity as a young person. So you wanted to figure out how things worked. What did that experience teach you at such an early age? It was quite a different time then. We didn't have the same sort of hustle mentality as we do now with the sort of, you know, entrepreneur influencers and the whole narrative around the complexity of starting a business and the sea of consultants that want to help you. It was still, you know, we were still very early in the digital era. It was still very much buy something, sell it for a bit more and you've got a business, right? It wasn't that complicated. So I kind of came into technology at a time where business hadn't been made into this crazy influencer mentality thing. So I, I was never I was never frightened of it, right? So so my rationale for starting a web design business was basically just having a side hustle that paid for flying lessons so I could go become an airline pilot. That was the aim, right? And it was because I was curious about computers that I taught myself how they work and learned to code and started doing that because for me, that was the path of least resistance to make the money that I needed to because it was kind of an expensive career option. And that then turned into a business. It was kind of unexpected. But I really do appreciate the fact that we didn't have that same, in some ways, buzz around entrepreneurship because it meant it wasn't overcomplicated. So a lot more people, I think, jumped in and really just got on with it. Yeah, similar when I was eight years old, when my godfather, Roland Dransfield, I named the business after him, actually. He came to my mum's house with a bucket and a sponge and he said, I've told you, you need to work for yourself. You're in business to so go and clean some cars in the neighborhood and then pay me back for your bucket and your sponge at the end of the day. Amazing. So I was in profit day one and I had that car washing around till I, I fell in love with shoes at 15 and then I got a job in a shoe shop. Well, that paid for my stuff like my horse riding and stuff like that. But it taught you so much, I think, at that age as well. It, it teaches you to not be worried about the no and to, yeah. to be able to negotiate and also be good to your suppliers. I had to either use their water or my mum's water. So I had to make sure that I kept everyone happy. But I think it was a great learning curve at such an early age. Yeah. And there's a fun fearlessness you have when you're young, right? Because you don't care. You don't care what people are going to say, you know. And, and when you combine that fearlessness with the kind of sponge-like ability we have at those ages to learn, and the fact that if a door closes, you're like, okay, fine, I'll just knock another one, you know, who cares? And so a lot of those early blockers that people have in business, you can kind of resolve. So, you know, I'm not saying or advocating that everyone should start a business at the age that we did, because, you know, I think there's a big benefit to education and all those good things and, you know, a benefit to, you know, just having a childhood as well in some ways. But yeah, I mean, it, it teaches you a lot just to get stuck in and try and make sales and make connections and, and grow. Yeah, and understand the value of money because it's my pocket money stopped at that point. So every Sunday I was out washing the cars. But for you, you were leading a team, weren't you, and employing people. How did that work that you had people who are literally older or maybe more experienced than you that you were leading? How did you handle it? It's one of those strange things. Life often is far more interesting in retrospect. So at the time, it didn't feel like a weird thing to do because I didn't know any better. So that's just how my life was. I was running a business and I had a team and we just got on with it. So I never walked into a meeting going, God, I'm a bit young for this. It was a genuine non-issue because I was still young enough where society hadn't pointed out the flaws. You know, I remember one of my first ever interviews that I did, it was a radio interview and the journalist, you know, quite naively and innocently said to me, so how does it feel to be a young Asian entrepreneur? And I remember thinking at the time that something just clicked in my head, like, 
what does that question even mean? You know, because by asking me, how does it feel to be a young Asian entrepreneur? What you're really asking is how does it feel to be an entrepreneur in spite of the fact that you are young and Asian? And you can substitute that for so many questions people ask now. We still see the, how does it feel to be a leading female entrepreneur? There's a hidden discrimination in the question. So, so when I was that age and I had my team and I was leading a team and I was scaling a business, I didn't feel a sense of age or skin color or any other random segmentation of me into another group. I was just getting on with it. And yes, in retrospect, it felt a bit weird because looking back on it, I'm like, wow, like I was kind of young. But at the time, I didn't feel that because it hadn't been pointed out to me. And I'm quite glad about that. Mm, that's true. I've been asked lots of times if I really felt that it was different being a woman running my own business from an early age. And I quite honestly didn't because I never questioned that. I always thought that I was just doing what I wanted to do. And, and you know what? I, if I look back on it, I definitely encountered some skepticism from people. You know, when a, when a 14, 15 year old comes in to sell you a big software solution or something. But it's no different to any other business deal like we can go in as kind of you know big shiny adults and you still just might not like someone mm. you might go into a meeting and someone just goes i just don't like them i don't want to do business with them it's no different really you can't please everybody as much as you might try to so I, you kind of just have to take that mentality forward with you and realize that there are always going to be people who will see you as too young or too old or too brown or too black or too female or too male or whatever and that's fine because if you can't persuade them otherwise, it's their loss. Mm. And that sounds flippant, but it's kind of true. So at 14, you didn't have the imposter syndrome then? No, that came later. <laughs> I know we grow into that, don't we? It's bizarre. Yeah. I think imposter syndrome comes with a weight of expectation, right? So, you know, I, I, I sometimes read back my own bio and, and it gives instant imposter syndrome. But that's just because there's a function of a curated version of yourself that goes into your bio versus the kind of reality of who you are as a human being, which is why it's so important to distinguish the two. You know, if I read back my bio, you expect some big, fancy, shiny person in a big, fancy, shiny house somewhere. And, and that's fine, but that's also not the reality. You know, I'm a small business owner like anybody else. We're all paying the bills and getting by. And, you know, yeah, we, we get a nice life out of it, but it's not life changing. You know, that's the realms of those big exits that you read about where people make, you know, a billion pounds in a day or whatever. So, you know, a lot of imposter syndrome comes out of that, where the minute you start to believe that your curated personality for media purposes is the real human being behind it, you're losing straight away. You talk about not world changing, but then you do change the world with your philanthropy work and you have a, an overwhelming list of responsibilities. Between business and philanthropy, what takes up most of your time and what takes up most of your heart? It varies, you know. You get weeks where it's kind of everything spinning and it's equal measures of all of it. And then there's some times where something happens in the world and you just have to respond. So you know, right at the beginning of this um, COVID crisis, which is the reason, you know, we're not in the same room today, you know, we instantly saw need across our entire charity portfolio, you know, here in Greater Manchester and internationally, we launched a global COVID response, uh, covering 30 countries, providing emergency assistance. And we you know we're talking about things like food, basic sanitation, stuff like that. 
So some of it is just responding to need and realizing that if you can make a difference, you're kind of obligated to do that because it's just by pure fluke that we're not in that position. You know, there's no great science to it. It could have easily have been you or I that would be the recipient of that help. And by some pure miracle of fluke, we're not. So if we're in a position to help, I'm kind of more frightened of people who don't want to, because how could you not? Like, how could you not have the heart to want to make a difference if you can? Mm. And most people can, I do believe. But then a business is like a village as well, right? You know, you've got people that come and work for you who spend more time with you than they do with their families. They make a choice every single day to come and, you know, be part of the business. And so again, you've got to treat that with heart too. So I think as business owners, you've got to lead with your heart across business and charity. You can't make a distinction not to. And you've got to allow your time to flex to where it's needed because that's kind of good time management is knowing the bits that you're really good at, the bits that you can make a difference with and where to apply that at any given time. Yeah, I think it's your duty as a business owner as well to use that platform, not just what well, we talk about making profit with purpose. So if we can do that and having a business is not just all about, as you say, an exit at the end of the day, it's also by what you can create and the changes you can make, either massive changes or just small changes incrementally. And the impact you can have on, as you say, those people that choose to spend more time with you than they spend with the families, it's your duty to help their lives be better too. And you've got to do it with with real sense of purpose, right? Like, you know, I kind of see the work that you do and you can, you can tell it comes from the fact that you'd do it anyway. You know, whether you had a business or if you were doing something else, you'd do that work anyway and you'd find a way because it comes from from the heart. And But we do have a lot of companies that, that don't. They do it to greenwash or they do it to just, you know, show that they're in as part of a conversation, you know. And you saw this quite acutely during the recent um, issues around Black Lives Matter. There are certain companies who genuinely took that as a moment to reflect and a moment to realize what could they do better. And there's a lot of companies who are like, oh, wow, this is a big social media trend. Let's just paint everything black, change our social media icon and pretend like we care. And consumers are smart, right? People know the difference between a sincerely motivated post or strategy versus, oh, we could just sell some more clothes. Let's just do this. Absolutely. And I think your team expects that to come from the heart. We have our values are on our wall and the whole team actually got involved in putting those together. So we have to um, live and breathe that every single day. And there's an expectation of much more transparency around businesses now and their leaders, I think. We built this city, exploring the purposeful relationships that grow a community. So you give your time to a lot of people. Who gives you time when you need it? I think like anybody, you've, you've got people who are friends or mentors or people you go to. So, you know, I've been lucky enough to make some really good friends in business who I can turn to when I need help and support in different situations. Um, but there's, there's one thing which is really important, which is you've got to learn to be quite introspective as well when you have a business. You can't always rely on having people to turn to because sometimes there, there's nobody else to make the decision apart from you and you've just got to make it right so you've kind of got to learn a lot more about yourself and it's one of those weird things like you know we're kind of born with ourselves and we live with ourselves but we tend not to know ourselves unless we make the effort so when i need it i have to be able to come to myself as well as to other people and i don't want that to sound unduly 
you know, like some weird yoga class because it's not meant to be. It's just a genuine sense that you have to understand what motivates you, how you make decisions, what your biases are. You know, where could you be held in a blind spot? Because if you can't see that, you can't make good decisions or deal with problems. So obviously, there's lots of great people around me who I'm very, you know, lucky to have. But then I have to be able to come to myself as well. You obviously know Danny Donerkey, Director of Medical at Everton. And Absolutely. I did, I've done some work with him. He's mentored me a couple of years ago and he's still a great friend now. And at one time he said to me, everything you need, you have. And I just didn't get it at all. That was not something that I could actually comprehend. And then probably a year later, I just thought, oh my God, everything I need, I have. And for me, I really relate to that because certainly since we had to go into lockdown um, and I spent a lot of time walking a couple of hours a day I didn't feel the need to check in with everybody and see if I was doing the right thing because ultimately as you say you know you've got to back yourself and you have to have faith that you are making the right decisions and that you are okay and sometimes the act of continual checking in can cloud your decisions because you don't know what people's motives and biases are you don't know what why they're giving you that advice are they just being nice to you do they want to get in on a deal? Who knows, right? And part of that was kind of formed in the early years for me. So when I had that technology company, you know, we were traveling out to the West Coast during kind of the first dot-com bubble. And one of the things I was really um, kind of inspired by was the way that decision-making was done, where you had, you know, leaders of significant businesses saying, you know what, leave that decision with me. I'm going to go for a hike and think about it. Or if you've got a difficult conversation to have, let's grab a coffee, let's go for a walk and let's talk. And it's a very different way of making decisions by, by giving yourself the right environment to trust yourself and actually being okay with not always having an instant answer because who does, especially in complicated times like this. So I do agree with the advice that Danny gave you, which is, you know, you have all the answers you need. It's quite liberating. Finally, it's taken me some time, but I got there in the end. Thank you, Danny. Um, so at Roland Transfield, we changed PR to purposeful relationships. And obviously, you could probably give a masterclass in building a network and somebody who believes in the power of connections and collaboration. What do you think is so important about building and nurturing relationships? And what has that given you? How has that rewarded you personally, professionally? You know, you kind of talk about sometimes the market or the economy or all these things as just these weird phenomena, like a cloud or whatever, but they're not the people. And so if you want anything to happen, if you want to be able to do anything, it's about people. Um, and I think there's also a nuance to that, which is business card bingo is quite a new sport in the world of business. And it's only really since that first dot-com bubble where networking really took off that people started to, to do that. But, you know, having a pile of business cards doesn't make a network. Having 10,000 LinkedIn connections doesn't make a network. I would rather have five good relationships with people that I can talk to or ask for advice or, or ask for an introduction than 10,000 people on LinkedIn who don't know me and are very deeply not incentivized to help. So I think if you want to build connections and collaborations, it's just about finding people who you resonate with, not because you've got an immediate deal to do, but just because you kind of like how they work or you're intrigued by them and you build up a friendship because that friendship is the thing that means that one day if you need to make an ask, you can and vice versa. And I think that's really 
for me and the last few months has really come to the fore. And, and again, in the last recession, 2008, 2010, when there was very little money in the system and there were no real deals to be had, it was then just that we looked after each other and when really kind of strong bonds were made. And ironically, some of those bonds that were made then, I haven't seen some of those people for 10 years. They've, they have actually rocked up now and they're there to help, you know, as they did then. Yeah. And it's also something which I think everyone can take a leaf from, which is, I think there's a huge kind of cohort within business land who think that the number of Twitter followers you have or the number of LinkedIn connections or the fact that you are at literally every single possible event is the sign of having a network. Well, I don't think it is. I think having a network is having that group of people that you can call on or you can be called on by when it's needed. And that doesn't mean me saying, oh, hey, Lisa, can you introduce me to whoever? It's about, hey, can we just, can we just have a chat about this? I'm just, I don't know what to do next. Like that, that's a powerful network. Mm. Otherwise, it's just, there's a group of people who might know your name. There are some very impressive people who know your name, though, through um, Thought Economics. So that's actually intriguing. So you've been interviewing some of the world's most prominent thought leaders across arts, politics, music, film, I think 12 Nobel Prize winners. What made you start that project? I got really annoyed with the way that media was going. And it, it wasn't, um, I didn't blame them. So after the first kind of dot-com bubble, you know, the whole sphere of media changed. So we went from quite long form articles through to, this digital realm where it was more infographic snippet content, you know, it was a very different way of publishing. And I personally didn't enjoy that because I think mine was the last generation that was brought up with kind of journals and long form editorial. So I just started interviewing people that I'd met over the years, realized, I guess, just by accident that there was this population who kind of enjoyed long form content. And so I just followed the thread. There was no plan. There still is no real strategy. I just kept following the thread to see who can I interview next? What, who can I talk to? And um, the rationale is it's just long form conversation with the people that are shaping the century. And that's everything from kind of, you know, science to human rights to entrepreneurship. And so do you literally think about who, who can I speak to next and then just try and reach out and ask them. Yeah. So I've got like a little list on my notes, which is very <laughs> unglamorous, but you know, it might be that I read a magazine or I see something on TV and I'm like, oh, wow, I bet they'd be interesting. And then I'll make a note and then I'll start just doing some research and it's kind of really bitty. So it just, you know, when you get some time, you might be like, oh, I wonder who I've got on my list. And then once I'm confident enough that they'd be worth talking to insofar as do they really have an opinion? Do they really, have they shifted the needle? Have they done something that I want to talk to them about? Then I'll try and make an approach. And often it's a no, or often it's a not now. And then sometimes, you know, you're lucky enough to find yourself on the phone with Maya Angelou for an hour and it's all worth it. So that's just incredible. Have you been really starstruck? But I'm sure you have. But was anybody in particular that was starstruck before you made that call? You know, I think I think Maya Angelou's got to be yeah. right up there. You know, she stood on the steps with Martin Luther King when he made that great speech. And there's been a lot, you know, I you know noam chomsky was he's just an intellectual powerhouse it's, it's pretty rare that i'm not a bit nervous before making that call because these are people who are in the public eye and it's not just the nerves of talking to someone who who's kind of you know a celebrity or whatever but they're all influential people so you need to do a good job <laughs> you know i'm not a journalist i'm not a professional at this 
and, and that news travels, you know, I, I'll reach out to someone and no doubt they'll look through my list and go, okay, well, he's spoken to those people that I know. So I'll check in with them to see whether it's worth speaking to Vikas, you know? So most of the nerves are about doing a good job and making sure that it's a good experience for the interviewee. Because if they enjoy it, then it makes the interview really interesting. And if they enjoy it, I get a great interview out of it. And hopefully there'll be a good referee for my next one. Now you know how I feel. (laughs) So obviously they're highly successful people, but are they all wildly different or is there some kind of common thread? There's a few threads between them and I wasn't intending to find them, to be honest, because the aim was just to kind of have a lot of diversity of opinions and topics. But, you know, practically everyone I've spoken to has got a passion about improving the world, right? So they want to move the needle forward on something. They, they have this thing that they just cannot let go of, which they have to achieve in their lifetime, otherwise their life has been a failure. So there's that, there's that real unrelenting desire for change. They're all really nice people, right? There's this, there's this real common misconception that the attitudes you see on The Apprentice are real life, and they're not. You know, I don't know many people who are successful and genuinely are that prickly or that arrogant or that condescending or have that big an ego because that's just not how people get on you know the people that i know who've become billionaires they're just really nice people because guess what to become that successful you've got to be really great at building relationships and to be great at building relationships you've got to be a good person so that's been a really interesting common thread between them and um I think the other one, which which again was kind of surprising, but if you think about it, isn't, is a diversity of interest and diversity of thought. So I've not met many great business leaders who only read about business. Like most of their bookshelves are filled with arts and philosophy and science. And I've never met many great sports people who only read about sports. So having a diversity of thought and a diversity of inputs into your life i think just 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 makes you better at being successful because you can find and join the dots that other people might not see i think also the common thread is is again it's that curiosity it's the same for people that i've been speaking to when we built the city and for me i wanted to ask some of the questions that they don't normally get asked and they wouldn't be asked on say a business panel but people have a similar curiosity and they don't feel that the job is done, that they do still want to keep that needle going and that there's an innate need in most people to do good stuff. None of us like to think about legacy and none of us are in it for legacy, but you know, what do you want it to say on your obituary? Do you want to just, do you want it to just say, oh, there's a person who made a bit of money or there's someone that just lived, consumed some resources and then died? I mean, come on. We're all capable of so much more than that. Even if your obituary was that there was two people in the world whose lives are better because you were in it, that's enough. I think Manchester also is just a place where you do feel that connection. Every leader I speak to in the city, maybe that's that's the same the, the world over, but I do feel and have felt really in the last few months uh, a real sense of that community and things, um, magic that happens that's powered by kind of connection and shared experiences and love and humanity. And that's been really thrown into um, focus, I think, in the last few months with some incredible gestures of, of kindness, really. Manchester's kind of got a history at this, right? So, you know, to use the kind of law enforcement parlance, we've got previous. So <laughs> we're, we're good at we're good at coming together when we need to. I think 
like any city, we've got a huge amount of pride about who we are as a people. And like any other city, there are networks who work extremely closely together to get things done when they need to get done. I think what we need to do is realize that we can form an, an inadvertent echo chamber doing that. Like much like yourself, you know, it's been really heartwarming to see the response of so many business people and leaders and things to what's happening. But for every one good deed that happened, there's also a hundred, few hundred people who are still living in poverty, who are still marginalized, who are still feeling the impact of discrimination in their lives every day. And they're not part of that bubble. They're not part of that echo chamber. They're never going to see those conversations. And so we've got to pat ourselves on the back for the good that is happening, but realize that there is still so much more to do. And there are so many more people who need to be brought into that embrace if we are actually going to change something. If you're loving We Built This City, please could you take the time to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform? Thank you. You travel a huge amount and spend a lot of time abroad through your work. And obviously, as Manx, we really love love our city, and I know you love it too. But you must see Manchester through other people's eyes. And it's just be interesting to think about is how brilliant we think we are as a city matched internationally. So Manchester's got this curious brand abroad, right? Where I think the engine of what's made Manchester successful internationally is quite disconnected from what what Manchester wants it to be. So, you know, we were at the heart of the Industrial Revolution, meaning that our tentacles have spread around the world, even across the global south, meaning that people always knew about Manchester and as as a place of aspiration, right? And then sports came along. And so, you know, there I am getting in a taxi in Kigali in Rwanda and the guy goes, so where are you from brother? And I'm like, Manchester, ah, Manchester United is great. Ah, you know, it's, um, it's this sense of fondness and warmness, which people see Manchester with, which I think is a very powerful thing. I think the challenge is Manchester, like so many places, and it's not, it's not, a, it's not a Manchester only criticism, but so many places do start to believe their own hype. So, you know, Manchester, talks up that it's a, a you know top five global destination for digital. And when you talk to people internationally, a lot of these things that we say that we are world-class at just aren't reflected in their view of the city. So that might be a function of communication. It might be a function of hype and reality being mismatched, but it certainly is reflective of, of, of how people internationally see us. I think Manchester opens a lot of doors because a lot of people know we exist. But then it's up to us to describe and ascribe the what next, which is, I know Manchester, but why? And we can only dine out on football and industry for so long. You know, the world at some point will get tired of hearing about Cotton and Manchester United and the tales that we wheel out at every possible event. So I think it's for us as a city to decide what will that narrative be? And how do we effectively communicate that in a way which is really authentic? For example, across Europe, Manchester's probably the number one place for e-commerce. You know, if you take a swathe of the top, the largest and most successful e-commerce businesses in Europe, most of them are based here. You know, that's a story worth shouting about. You know, we have the largest civic university. We have Nobel laureates. You know, we, we have so much that 
we genuinely are world class at. And so perhaps we need to have that conversation a bit more honestly about what are we great at and what are we not great at and how can we get there? I mean, obviously, Andy Burnham and the council working on Build Back Better with also um, business leaders. And in doing so, I think I've been involved in some of those conversations and and it it does feel like the city is recognising that some of the moving parts are less than perfect. So post-COVID, this is absolutely the right time to look at what we need to do better. So I think you're saying there's a little bit of reality check maybe before we actually start building back. Let's take that time to unpick the pieces that don't necessarily work and investigate those first. Yeah, and it's not there's nothing wrong with being honest about wins and failures, right? There's no city in the world that's perfect. And there's no city in the world who would want to admit imperfection. But if you want to grow, you know, we come back to our conversation about all the answers you need are within. You know, some of those answers are about admitting what you need to work on and being able to openly say to the world, yeah, I kind of need to work on that. And that's okay. But that's quite alien in patriotism because any slight to your patriotic narrative is seen as a deep cut. So an example outside um, this is, you know, quite topically in recent weeks, there's been a huge amount of discussion around slavery and the impact that slavery's had in our world. And this has raised the specter of why isn't it taught well in the curriculum? And when you cut, when you dig a bit deeper, you realize it's because, you know, history has always been a celebratory subject here. And there's a sense that we are admitting a weakness by admitting our culpability in the global slave trade, transatlantic slave trade. You see the same with businesses. A lot of our big high street name businesses were built on the back of slavery. But then there's nothing wrong with acknowledging that Harvard University, right in the middle of the recent uh, discussions around race, their entire front page was a deep acknowledgement of how slavery played a role in the growth of Harvard in those early days, what that meant and what that means for today. So it was confronting a reality rather than hiding from it and realizing that by confronting the realities of what is, you can then really work on creating what could be. That kind of ties into one of our values, I think, which is admit it, fix it, move on. And I know that's quite basic, but if we start, if we try and hide things uh, and cover those things up, that we're not going to affect change. And it is that humility and the honesty and the will to, to make amends, which is the starting point. Yeah. And it means not becoming so entrenched because of the wrong reasons. Like so many initiatives in business and civic life, People don't want to move because they've already put so much of their own brand into it. And so you see this all over the world in different cities where they launch initiatives. And the initiative clearly isn't working, but they don't want to move away from it because politician X has staked their reputation on it. Whereas I think voters would be much more forgiving if they said, yeah, we tried it, didn't work. Here's why. So here's what we're going to do. Absolutely. In terms of our 15 values as a business, which are called the Roland Transfield Way, and that's what we try and live by personally and professionally. Which of those values do you lead into most yourself? Well, there's two for me, which really, which really hit, which was, first of all, keep it real, because the minute you start to believe your own hype, you're losing. And it takes a massive emotional toll to, to do that. And then the second one was about walking a mile in other people's shoes, because unless you can really kind of empathise with what someone's going through or their experience or perspective in life, you can't have an honest conversation with them. 
And it doesn't matter what you do for a living, what, you know, in any business, you have to understand the experience of the person you're dealing with or the people that form your customer base or your staff or your stakeholders to be able to work with them and form a relationship. And too many people don't do that. I think that's the one that I really try and think about. It's easy to think that you do have empathy for people and you feel you're an empathetic person, but it does take a lot of time to and effort to actually really put yourself in somebody else's shoes, truly. Hmm. And it takes even more effort and even more foresight to be able to say to somebody, I don't understand, to, to tell me, you know, like sitting down with someone and saying, okay, so I don't understand, like, what does it mean to experience racism or sexism? What does it mean to experience discrimination because of a disability? You know, speak to someone in a wheelchair and you'll realize how badly designed our cities are. It's not about necessarily having empathy, but it's about being able to ask questions of people from a position of complete humility so that you can better appreciate their position vis-a-vis -vis what, what you are trying to understand or know. This is the We Built the City podcast, celebrating the Mancunians that built and continue to build this amazing city. We talked before about legacy. You're a trustee of Mustard Tree in Manchester, which supports our homeless community and also chair of the board of In Place of War, a global charity. Have you consciously chosen both homegrown and international causes? For, my, for me personally, I think there's an obligation to help where you can. And what that means is finding causes where you get passionate enough about it to do something because you know the, the non-profit sector is really hard work and there's different levels of engagement you know there was a study that showed that for a lot of people clicking like on a charity's page on facebook releases the same dopamine hit as actually giving some money but obviously it's not quite as useful for the charity right there's a lot of people who you use the same old mechanisms yet another ball yet another 10k whatever and that's fine and that's that's great but then i see it in the work that you do you get really stuck in because you're passionate about the causes you support and you want to do something and so you will put everything into that as much as you put into a business and for that to happen you've got to really care right and that could be because of a personal experience it could be because you can't not see something you can't unsee something I spend a lot of my life traveling, particularly into the global south. You can't unsee the way people are treated. You can't unsee the way governments behave. You can't unsee the legacy of conflict and war. And if you can see that and not act, I'm worried. Mm. If you can see the poverty in Greater Manchester or anywhere and not act, I'm worried. Do you see yourself more as a philanthropist than an entrepreneur, or do you think those two things sit? very easily side by side they're just words aren't they <laughs> they are <laughs> i didn't know i was an entrepreneur until somebody told me i was i didn't know i was a philanthropist until somebody told me i was they're just words it doesn't mm. matter i don't see myself as either i'm just me <laughs> yeah and i think that's kind of helpful because those words are meaningless because we're here to do our best irrespective of what we do and being an entrepreneur in inverted commas comes with so many different weights of expectation and behavior. And, you know, like particularly here in the UK, entrepreneurship culture is hyper alpha, hyper masculine, extremely toxic. You know, I, I don't want to be associated with 90% of the 
things associated with that word. And then philanthropy is a spectrum too. You know, you've got people who just write big checks and walk away. You've got people who don't write checks and get stuck in. So, so I try and stay away from those words as much as I can and just be happy that I'm doing what I can do and what I should do. And you've done a lot. Uh, it looks like you covered all bases, but is there anything that you still have a passion for that you haven't got to yet? Don't know. And I'm quite comfortable with that because if I went back and spoke to 16-year-old me and asked 16-year-old me, you know, what do you want in life? It's very different to, you know, 39-year-old me. It's kind of, I don't know. I just, I just like to follow the threads that appear in life and see where they lead. Some of them lead literally nowhere. Sometimes they lead to an extraordinary experience. You know, like I decided to mentor with, um, with a business plan competition many years ago. And that's meant that we've gone to do the NASDAQ closing bell a few times with investment. You know, it's just, you, who knows? Mm. And you, if, if, you, if you allow yourself to follow threads of curiosity as much as your life allows, like I realize that I'm in a very lucky position where I can do that because I've got the freedom to do that. But I think everyone, to some extent, has the freedom to follow some threads and to see where they lead. And if you allow yourself to do that and just be in the moment with it, then then fun things will happen. And he used to say to Danny at times that I can't believe that's just happened. How? And he said, well, that's that's what happens because you're curious and you follow the threads. And that, that's great when you don't know what's going to happen, what's around the corner. And why should you? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, if I'd have sat down with you in December 2019 and said, okay, so here's what's going to happen in 2020. You know, if I'd have said to you, what do you want to do in 2020? And you were like, ah, stay at home, really. <laughs> then you'd be winning. But I, I can't imagine many people had that answer. But this is the thread that we follow. And here we are today doing a podcast because we are in the business of saying yes to things. If you want to know how to build a community that dances on tables, you can find out right here on the We Built The City podcast. Well, thank you so much. That's just really inspirational. And as always, Vikas, it's been quite a long time since we spoke uh, at length. I've got a Manchester quick fire round for you. Oh, well, this will be fun. So where in Manchester do you most feel at home? Oh, God, I thought about that question too long, didn't I? <laughs> where, in Manchester, where in Manchester do I feel most at home? Oh, God, this is such a hard question. Do you know what? It's going to sound really weird, but rush home. And I don't mean that because I'm brown, right? I mean that because it's somewhere that was always really special growing up mm -hmm. because it was a place where me and my dad used to spend time together. Like we just go and get food together and stuff like that. So it's a place that just has really special memories. Mm. And it's also a place where I'm completely anonymous. I spent two years in Russia and I lived there after university at the best time. Yeah. It's absolutely brilliant place. Oh, I love it. Favorite Manchester band or artist? It's got to be Oasis. I mean, that was, that was the music of my misspent youth. I learned to play the guitar with Oasis. It's just amazing. Fantastic. And fish and chips or pie and chips? Chips. Just chips. Just, just, I mean, honestly, <laughs> it's the reason I will never have a six pack is because Manchester does some of the best chips on the planet. If I was a seagull, I would choose Manchester. <laughs> I've not heard that one before. <laughs> and also, what do you think is Manchester's best export to date? Okay, it's, it's good. I, I, we're going to get deep now, but democracy, I think, is our biggest, is our best export because, you know, we, we, we're famous for many things and an in, in, in industry is certainly impactful. But, you know, if it, with industry, if it wasn't us, someone else would have done it because it was a movement. Democracy wasn't. Democracy required a foresight of 
a coming together of different positions. And Manchester's had this ability to hold opposing values and tension in a healthy way. It would allow those difficult discussions to have that resulted in the kind of political, social and cultural principles that then go on to create something as wonderful as democracy. So I think that has to be our role in democracy, that our role in the current version of global democracy has to be probably our greatest export, in my opinion. And what do you most miss about Manchester when you're not here? Cats. <laughs> so it's really funny. Um, I, ca- I can't pick a thing that I miss. I just miss the place, right? Like every time I'm away, I always try and get a window seat on the way back because there's a real beautiful feeling when you see Manchester coming up as you're kind of coming in through the clouds. And now we've got a skyline. You kind of see those big pointy towers and you just, just this home. And I, I can't quantify that by saying I miss a particular sculpture or a particular place, but you know, we're we're really lucky to live in a city, which is, you know, a paradox. We're huge, but we're also compact. You know, we are wealthy, but also accessible. We are bohemian, yet we are also, you know, scientific and progressive. You know, we're, we're a bit of everything. And I think that's why so many people find it so easy to make Manchester home, because whoever you are, there is a version of Manchester for you. And that's the feeling you get when you come in and see it through the clouds. Every time we come through the clouds, everyone, you can hear on the plane going, look at the bloody weather. And then by the time everyone's on the ground, they're absolutely, oh, I love it here. <laughs> it feels much better. So it's that view, isn't it? It's always iron grey clouds coming over Stockport. Thanks so much. It's been absolutely superb. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And it feels to me that that was a kind of like a tough love letter to the city. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this. Vikas built this city by just getting on with it, by shifting the needle every day and by following the threads of curiosity. And he would always choose Manchester, especially if he was a seagull, because we have the best chips. My next guest on We Built This City is Eamon O'Neill, High Sheriff of Manchester and well-known media personality. This is a podcast from Roland Dransfield PR. Our mission is to build purposeful relationships in all we do. If you want your company to be part of that, give us a call on the number we've always had, 0161 236 If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and leave us a review where you get your podcasts. Thank you.